Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 3 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we discussed Napoli's Georgian wonder kid, Oli Burke's Bundesliga redemption, the curious contractual case of Antoine Griezmann and Lille's attacking style of play under new boss Paolo Fonseca. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when in this episode. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. You find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Okay, with the housekeeping out the way, I'll let the episode itself take centre stage. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Here we are again, another episode of The Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Michael Jones is looking radiant. The sun is shining down on him in his bedroom. And did I say it after that clip I saw of you on your Instagram, Michael, presenting some news in front of the camera. Uh, you, we, can, we can quite comfortably say that, that you don't have a face for the podcast or for the radio, um, but you, you certainly have a voice for the podcast. Anyway, Michael Jones, I'm tying myself in notes trying to compliment you here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It was a really exciting moment last week, but yeah, back to podcasting today and I uh, don't have to wear a seat whilst I, um, whilst I talk on this, so that's always a bonus as well. What about yourself, Ali? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Michael. I'm good. Busy, busy, uh, but it's a lovely night here. In the south side of Glasgow, I've just been for a walk through the grounds over at Pollock House, which is very nice. Lovely preparation for this evening's episode. So yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling good. Rudy Barlow will be joining us shortly. He is finishing his shift as we speak. He is, as always, a man in demand. But we'll dial him in in the not too distant future to discuss the latest goings on in La Liga. Now, I think. We should probably start this episode with some chat on Serie A and three games into the new season, it is Napoli who sit at the top of the table. While they were held to a goalless draw by Fiorentina on Sunday night, Luciano Spalletti's new look side have been the most eye-catching Serie A outfit so far. And that's despite, of course, the recent departures of the likes of Caridou Koulibaly, Lorenzo Insigne and Dries Mertens. Now, one player in particular, Kvica Kvaritskelia, has stood out with three goals in as many appearances. At just 21 years of age, just how central could the Georgian international be to this new dawn in Naples, Michael? Yeah, I'm hugely excited for him. I mean, I think a lot of people were before he arrived in Naples, but... So many more people are now, and he really has just taken to the league so quickly. Like you said, three goals in those three games. They've all been excellently taken to. He scored on his debut versus Elas Verona, and then a brace versus Monza. And both goals were absolutely fantastic. One of them, he shimmied really well onto his so-called weaker left foot before drilling it home past Alessio Cranio, but the other goal was very much Lorenzo Insigne-esque, where he's cut in on his right foot on the edge of the box and bent a peach of a curler into the far corner. And I think what always makes players like him a little bit more exciting is, is that he's not emerged through one of the top five leagues 
and by emerging through sort of Georgian football and Russian football, of course, something which we aren't really sort of following now for obvious reasons. But if you look at his background, he was a graduate from Dinamo Tbilisi. He then spent two seasons on loan at another Georgian team, Rostavi. There are only two seasons in the Georgian top flight. It kind of gives you a bit of an idea of how he wasn't maybe just breaking through at the ages of 16. But Lokomotiv Moscow were the first team who were the first Russian team to sort of notice his abilities. And he spent a short period on loan there, struggled a little bit, scored one goal in seven before two seasons for Rubin Kazan, where he got the young player of the season in Russia two years in a row. And this was all before the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the start of this year. And then he made a very peculiar but interesting move back to Dinamo Batumi, who are the most recent Georgian champions, where I think he scored seven goals in eight eight goals in 11 games, sorry. And he was key to them continuing their momentum. But because of the, when the war had broken out, he didn't really have the option of joining uh, top five side. So it seemed like it was always agreed for him to come to Napoli. And although there's been a bit of a long way, it's really coming to the fore now. And he's also shone at international level. I mean, this is a guy who scored a big goal when he was 19 versus Spain, scored both goals in a historic victory over Sweden. And just this summer before he arrived in Italy, he dominated the third division league C of the Nations League. And Georgia looked about to be promoted. He scored goals versus Bulgaria and North Macedonia. But it, it is he is so exciting. And I think one of the things was is that, you know, he one, he does look like the perfect replacement for Lorenzo Insigne. Much of it was made of his departure to Toronto. Obviously, a club icon, but of early evidence, there's real signs to suggest that Kretzkelia could actually be or could offer more for Napoli at his best if they have him at his best than Insigne did. I mean, physically, he's a lot more imposing than Insigne. He stands at six foot tall, very two footed, maybe one of Insigne's criticisms. And as amazing as Insigne was, this guy looks fantastic and he just has so much to his game so much creativity but also that directness when he needs it as well just seems to either find the space to run into or is happy not to rush things really mature for a 21 year old and like you said it's a new dawn for Napoli and I think he kind of epitomizes it Ali and you know mm. we see Carrara or Caravadona as he's also already been nicknamed in Napoli, just to give a bit of insight into how good he's been. But we've seen other players really step up for those names that you mentioned who have departed. We've seen Peter Zielinski, who has been a key player for Napoli for a few years, but now Andreas Mertens has gone. He seems to have stepped into that number 10 role where really looking like he may flourish this season. Kim Min-Jae, who's arrived from Fenerbahce for Kaladu Koulibaly, that seemed a massive gamble mm-hmm. from those who hadn't sort of scouted him closely, including myself given the nature and stature of Koulibaly, but the, uh, the South Korean international referred to as the monster has really, again, just taken to Napoli really quickly so far and looks really good. And I think one of the refreshing things is, is that the pressure is kind of off with this new look Napoli team. I feel like in the past with Napoli, the even last season when they were in the title race and when they were in one with Juventus, I think in 2019 off the, off the top of my memory, is that the player, the likes of Koulibaly, Mertens and Insigne, almost their club icon status, maybe worked against them at times in the levels of pressure it put on them. And you sensed in the last season when Insigne was known to be leaving and it seemed like the other days were numbers and it turned out they were, that they really had that pressure. Now you've got this fresh young group and then there is one other notable potential departure in Fabian and Luciano Spalletti looks to have replaced him with Tangri and Dombele and Fabian's got huge boots to fill, but it very much depends on what Ndombele comes into Napoli because he's a player who's really sort of had peaks and troughs during his career. And I know you watched him a bit last season um, in his loan spell at Olympique Lyonnais from Tottenham Hotspur after he wasn't mm. part of Antonio Conte's plans. So I was just kind of wondering what of recent evidence you kind of saw of Ndombele and what state of mind the player is in at the moment. Yeah, I think 
probably the one word that, that always comes to mind when you watch Ndombele, when you think of Ndombele, is frustrating. I think back to how good he was first time around at Lyon before the move to Tottenham when he was on loan from Amiens. He was so good to watch. He was a player who, when you watched him, you thought he has a high ceiling. He is the sort of player you pay money to see. Obviously, didn't work out at Tottenham and second time round at Leon, it, it didn't really work either. Michael, I think he struck most observers as a player under Peter Bosch who didn't really know what his role was. Now, that's not something that was unique to Ndombele last season. The majority of the players in that Leon team didn't really know what was expected of them, what their role was supposed to be. But but Ndombele looked particularly confused as to what was expected of him. He he really struggled to impose himself in games. And for me anyway, he he, he almost held back Maxon's Kakere at times as well, just with the way that Ndombele played. He he was unable to do the basics correctly. He was unable to to impose himself in games the way that he perhaps should have. And so I think over what, 15 appearances, he, he registered one goal and two assists. And I know he's not there to score goals, to provide this assists in Dombley, but but he didn't really do anything. He he didn't show any of the signs that he'd shown the first time around at Leon. He didn't show any real signs that he was turning a corner again after plateauing if not even regressing when he went to Tottenham Hotspur. So the answer, Michael, to your question is that I think Ndombele, and again, this is maybe a cheap observation to make, it's maybe a cliche, but he finds himself with a real point to prove. I think Napoli is a great place to do that. I'm keen to to put the ball back in your court now, Michael, and ask you, how how do you think he'll play under Spalletti? Can Spalletti get Ndombele playing the way that we know he can play because... I won't be the only one to say this. When he is playing to the best of his abilities, he is a joyful player to watch. He is a player with so much ability. So how do you see Ndombele faring under Luciano Spalletti, Michael? Yeah, I'll come to Spalletti in just a second. I mean, one thing I would say quickly is he just said, you know, what a joy to watch when you saw him at your best. I was doing commentary for Wolves two seasons ago in lockdown and they played Tottenham Hotspur. I think Ndombele scored in the first minute, but... His overall performance, I think second to Kevin De Bruyne last season, is the best performance I've ever seen there. He was that good, but that was so seldom for Spurs. But if there was, going back to your question, Ali, if there was one manager I would like to see Ndombele work under in Serie A at the moment, it's not Massimiliano Allegri, it's probably not Simone Inzaghi or Maurizio Sarri, it's definitely Luciano Spalletti. I think Spalletti does have... One, he's such a likeable character. He's got a real love for these types of players who can be quite temperamental, but also have that core natural, sheer natural ability. And I think Spalletti it will be more excited by the signing of Ndombele than anybody else because he'll see it as his own project. And if you look at sort of Spalletti's resume quickly, you see that... In his one season with Roma, he was key to sort of unlocking Raja Nangalan's best form um, about five years ago. He then took Nangalan with him to Inter Milan, where he also enjoyed uh, some of his best periods for Inter Milan. Working under him, Stefano Sharari was another one at Roma. He really shone under Spalletti and Mauro Icardi as well. I think it's easy to say sort of where Mauro Icardi and other players drifted off the radar massively in the last few years, but was a Serie A golden boot winner under Spalletti, another player with tremendous natural ability. So I think in that sense, the, it is a good combination. And you do really think if Ndombele can't make this work, I think it will be given time because there is a big loan fee attached. And I think it's an obligation from the best of my memory. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this one turns out. Absolutely. Michael will be sure to monitor Ndombele and Quaradona, as he has been named by the Napoli support closely as the Serie A season develops. Now, elsewhere, at the other end of the table, Salernitana produced an emphatic 4-0 victory over Sampdoria. For Sampdoria, that loss caps off what has been a miserable summer, which has included the departure of Talisman 
Antonio Candreva, a player who, ironically enough, was starting for Salernitana in this match. The mood is extremely low in Genoa right now, but you think it could get a lot worse still, Michael, don't you? Yeah, I really do. I really worry for Sampdoria. I think they're on a really big downwards trajectory and it was kind of not just symbolised uh, by Candreva, but another ex some player in Federico Bonazzoli, who shone during the game, the striker scored a goal and his movement just pulled the Sam defence, hapless defence all over the park. And Bonazzoli, a really interesting example. And the reason I'm kind of just going to run through these stats is because the, the, the underlying reasons of the sort of Samp mismanagement, which is why I worry for them more. He spent six years on the books of Sampdoria, scoring six goals in 26 games. In his last season on loan with Salernitano, had an obligation to buy if he stayed up. He scored 10 in 32 and was key to their survival. But you wouldn't have known by this game that it was Salernitano who spent most of last season in the relegation zone. They looked fluid, exciting, tactically. They were super flexible. Everything that Sam were not. Sam Doria couldn't defend a high line. They couldn't defend a low block. And the lack of identity, I think, is sort of epitomised by what's been that really underwhelming summer transfer window so far. It's been... Improved the mood's been improved a little bit recently with the recent arrival of Harry Winks, another Tottenham midfielder with a big point to prove. I'm kind of, kind of intrigued by that signing, but it is just on a loan. But Gonzalo Villa, Philip Juricic, and Abdel Hamid Sabiri, a player's come up from Serie B. But the other two, again, players who maybe have found their level in Serie and really, again, need to show on sort of players that are necessarily going to take this team to a higher level. And the departures have just been really big for them this summer. We talked about those two. Arbin Ekdal, Swedish midfielder, was sold to another potential relegation rival in Spezia this season. Mikael Damsgaard went to Brentford, but they seem mm. to have lost a lot of value with him over the past season, not just because of injury, but because they just couldn't seem to get him up and running or find a role for him in this team. And it was, in fact, his Denmark contribution that seemed to make his value sort of skyrocket. Uh, Mayo Yoshida, Morten Torsby, Torsby massive for Sampdoria. The past couple of seasons have both joined you in the Bundesliga rally. And yeah, I mean, Bonazzoli, he's gone to Salernitana. And then Gianluca Caprari, he spent last season on loan at Elas Verona, has gone to Monza, another potential relegation rival. So it seems like they've bolstered all the teams around them. And now they're kind of left with the joint oldest squad in Serie A with Inter Milan, but Inter Milan seem to have a much more sort of exciting future in front of them right now. And, you know, this is their 10th consecutive season in Serie A under and back under Marco Giampaolo, but they look so far removed from the team he last had with them in 2019 when he got the ill-fated AC Milan job. But since then, he's also looked a shadow of the boss he once was. And with their ownership situation now, I think it's Marco Lana, uh, who's in charge following the arrest of Massimo Ferrero, which we talked about on the podcast last year. So the ownership situation is quite peculiar. There is apparent American investment, but yeah, they don't have to look far in Genoa to see how that won't necessarily be a short-term solution to the Serie A prospects as Genoa infamously took in Andrei Shevchenko following new ownership last summer and went down and as things stand, I really worry that Sam are going to suffer the same fate. Interesting, Michael. Yeah, it would be, or it would perhaps have been unthinkable not too long ago for both of the big clubs in Genoa to be playing their football outside of Italian football's top flight. But, well, if, if Sampdoria continue the way they are going, then, then that may well become a reality. Another one to watch closely as the season develops. We love narratives, we love storylines and Serie A offers plenty of those. Okay, that was all very interesting, Michael. I think what we'll do now is we'll take a quick break. We will fill up our water bottles and we'll come back to look at Lille, who of course suffered that huge loss, that 7-1 loss at home to PSG not too long ago. We're going to look at Paolo Fonseca's start to life at the Stade Pierre Mauroy. We'll be right back. Following their iconic title win in 2021, Leo perhaps unsurprisingly struggled last season under the guidance of Jostling Govanek 
finishing in 10th place and well adrift of the European spots. The summer arrival of former Roma coach Paolo Fonseca and a convincing 4-1 victory over Auxerre on the opening day of the current campaign had, however, fostered fresh optimism at the Stade Pierre-Mauroir. The five-time champions of France therefore headed into their matchday free home clash with Paris Saint-Germain with a degree of confidence only to be put quite brutally to the proverbial sword by a Parisian performance for the ages. So, Ali, what happened in that moral-shattering sh- 7-1 loss in the northeast. Yeah, Michael, I had earmarked that Sunday night fixture as one to watch. I was really looking forward to it. There were plenty of narratives in the build-up. Obviously, Christophe Galtier going back to the stadium, back to the club at which he had won that iconic league and title. Uh, Paolo Fonseca, one of the, the most entertaining managers, shall we say, in Europe's top five leagues, in charge of a Lille side, which in their opening day win over Auxerre had looked good, they'd looked entertaining, they played some really nice stuff. You also had, and I'll come back, I'll circle back to this shortly, but the, the developing narrative that was Neymar's supposed uh, falling out with Kylian Mbappe, um, which also gave this game a little bit of extra spice. So really, on paper, despite the fact that PSG had started the season so well themselves, really on paper, this game promised an awful lot. And I suppose, at least by by way of goals, we, we did see an awful lot. We, we saw eight goals at the time of recording. I just want to highlight one statistic in particular, or two statistics, if you like. So Leo have the fourth highest expected goals in the league but they also have the fourth highest expected goals allowed so it's very much a case of you score four we'll score five or in the case of this game against PSG you score seven and we'll score one but but Fonseca's approach is very much almost universally all out attack certainly in the early days it has been a case of playing a really open style of football and when we look at the XG for the game against PSG, Lille did register 1.7 expected goals. Now, I would be surprised if too many teams will be able to top that as the season goes on. But that said, I think it also is quite telling in the sense that it, it does reveal maybe some of the flaws in Fonseca's approach Quite simply, Michael, they were far too open. And Jose Font, who's now, what, 37, 38, uh, and even at the time when he moved, moved to Liga and it felt like he was maybe on the decline, he had a brilliant season at the back alongside Sven Botman in that title-winning season, played a huge role then. But but that was probably his swan song. It does feel like he is now, and, and this is quite a harsh way to put it, but he has passed his sell-by date, Michael, and he was brutally exposed by a front line that would expose probably, certainly in the current form that they're in, probably even the best defences in Europe. So you did feel rather rather sorry for, for old Monsieur Font uh, on, on that Sunday night, really up against Neymar and Mbappe and Messi. He, he had a torrid time of it. So just taking a step back, I think the result which we've spoken about there had, had three factors behind it. Firstly, Fonseca's naively open approach to the game. Secondly, PSG's front line linking up flawlessly together. And thirdly, Wheels mostly underwhelming business in the summer transfer window. Now, we'll circle back to Fonseca's approach and PSG's scintillating front line later in this section. But let's firstly look at Lille's squad and their transfer business over the last year or so. Now, you mentioned, Michael, that Le Dog had a rather disappointing season last year, falling from champions to 10th place. And if I'm being honest, while I say it was disappointing, I wasn't too surprised. I was decidedly underwhelmed by the appointment of Jocelyn Gurvenek. And as well, we think about the departures of Mike Mignon, the departures of the likes of Bubakari Sumari. So most people did anticipate that they would struggle. This summer, 
I, I think this summer's actually been worse for them, despite the fact that they've brought in Fonseca, who on paper is a much better manager than Gurvenik, has a lot more experience and has delivered at a far higher level than, than Gurvenik, certainly on the European stage. But despite that managerial appointment, I think when you look at it from a squad perspective, it was a really poor summer. Uh, you had the likes of Sven Botman, Burat Yilmaz, Sergei Celik, Renato Sanchez, all heading out the door and coming in whilst Mohamed Bayo represented an exciting signing up front. Uh, elsewhere, the likes of Alexandro, Jonas Martin, Remy Cabela. None of those signings really excite me too much, Michael, and I don't think they do anything at all, really, to, to improve this Leo squad. They've obviously had two difficult summers, Michael, this one probably more difficult than the last, and I think what's quite striking, what tells us quite a lot, is that only three players who started on the final day of that league-winning season against Angers started on the opening day of the current campaign against Auxerre, and that's Thiago Giallo, Benjamin André and Jonathan David. So, quite simply, Michael, the squad isn't in the best place right now. So having looked at where the squad is at, let's now turn our attention to the way Fonseca approached the game against PSG. I've referenced it briefly earlier in this section, but Lille did play with a real desire to attack and in so doing, they afforded far too much time and far too much space to PSG's highly gifted attacking players. Now, we know that Fonseca is an attack-minded manager. We know that he focuses on a sort of possession-based system, trying to get the best out of his players. And we know that certainly at Roma, that defensive record was woeful. Michael, I just want to speak to you. Obviously, Serie A is your domain. It's your area of expertise. So what did we learn from Fonseca's spells in charge of the likes of Roma and, and to an extent Shakhtar Donetsk? And taking that into account, why should we perhaps not have been too surprised by the way he approached this tie with an already free-scoring PSG side? Yeah, I mean, why he we shouldn't be surprised? Uh, yeah, my domain Serie A, but I was watching the highlights because I kind of wanted to just see Neymar and Mbappe and Messi in full flow. And within a minute or two, I'd like I, I hadn't actually remembered Leo were managed by Fonseca, and then I was like watching this team, and I was like, this this structure looks awfully familiar. And I realized, you know, quite quickly that this was a Fonseca back three pushed way too high before, um, sort of way beyond the limits the physical limits of his defenders, something he just seems to totally neglect as a manager, sort of in preference of that high line trying to squeeze the opposition in. But I always think there's been a bit of an issue with his teams in terms of pressing to always necessarily match that. And yeah, I mean, his time in Italy, he just never seemed to learn from the same mistakes. And I think it wasn't necessarily the league finishes. Neither of them were terrible. Neither, neither time he got in the Champions League, fifth and seventh. But they would always have pretty poor start seasons, good mid-seasons, and would gem generally fall off towards in the final third of the season. And it, it was often the case his teams would just get figured out. He would never really have such as a plan B to combat those teams that would want to take the game to them. He'd still very much want to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, which sometimes as a manager, surely you've just got to recognise the abilities of the players that you have. And for him to try and apply this kind of strategy against PSG, it just looked like his team was sort of morally beaten up within about 20 or 30 minutes, didn't it? And mm. I do think, you know, I think, like you said, he's he's not a manager who hasn't, who's appeared out of nowhere. He has built his CV over the course of a few years. Great time with Shakhtar, but again, they struggled in Europe under him. Again, against, you know, more qualified opposition. So the real, there will be a challenge in terms of pushing for the top four, how they fare against rivals. And they're just going to have, to, I think, very much be a case of picking up maximum points where possible against teams are expected to be such as always there. But mm. let's see how far that takes him. Absolutely, Michael. Absolutely. Okay, so we've looked at Leo and Fonseca's approach to the game. I think we do have to shine the spotlight for a brief moment anyway on PSG's Front line. Now, I think what we saw on that Sunday night was what we all hoped we would maybe see from Messi, Neymar and Mbappe last season. And to be honest, 
we never really saw it. We didn't see it consistently anyway. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the headlines, a lot of the developing narratives leading up to that game were to do with supposed friction between Kylian Mbappe and Neymar. Now, it's been well-documented following Mbappe's signing of that new three-year contract earlier this year that the French World Cup winner has a lot of sway on and off the field of play. And, and understandably, that has, has maybe arced Neymar, shall we say. We've got to remember that Neymar himself has so much so much sway from a marketing perspective, has so much pull from a marketing perspective. So I think he's quite right to feel aggrieved, shall we say, at the amount of sway, the amount of influence afforded to Mbappe. Mbappe, of course, or supposedly had had quite quite a considerable role in the decision to bring in Louis Campos. So you can see absolutely why why Neymar might have felt slightly aggrieved. But that said, it did feel rather like, certainly when we were watching the way that Neymar and Mbappe and, of course, Leo Messi linked up, it did feel like the narrative crafters were searching for a story that perhaps wasn't fully there. It's obviously something we need to monitor. And if things were perhaps to turn sour on a Champions League night at the Bernabeu, for example, maybe these stories would resurface. But for the time being, it looks like any differences, whether or not those were ever there, have been put to one side. And PSG going forward do look extremely impressive. Granted, against Monaco, they, they weren't quite as free-flowing as free-scoring. But overall, certainly with with the first few weeks of the season now in the bank, it does look like PSG are going to be a real treat to watch going forward under Christophe Galtier. Circling back now to Leo, obviously that defeat was resounding and it was quite sobering. Maybe maybe a wake-up call of sorts for Fonseca, although given what we know about Fonseca, I wouldn't be too surprised if he remains quite wedded to that all-out attack style of play. But I think there is reason for optimism. I think Jonathan David has started the season really well. Slightly awkward in the sense that he and his agent probably thought he wouldn't be at wheel still by this point, but he's still there. And with the exception of his penalty miss late on against Ajaxio, he's made a real positive start to the season for Lille. Also, I think we need to give some flowers to Angel Gomez. He's not had it easy in terms of his career. He's really had to put the work in. He, I don't think, is going to make it to the very, very top, but certainly based on his first few games in a slightly deeper role alongside Bonjamal and Andre in a double pivot, he's looking really influential. He is ranked seventh for progressive passes this season, first for touches this season in the whole of league, and, and fifth for through balls this season. And we, of course, love a through ball on the Road to Nowhere podcast. So, I think playing alongside the highly experienced Bonjamal and Andre in that double pivot should be really beneficial for his development. I really like the way he plays his game. I like the way he is, always seems to be in, in good control of, of what's going on when he has the ball and even when he doesn't have the ball. Still fairly young as well. So let's see how he develops. Let's see if Jonathan David can finally kick on to that next level. It does feel like He's not plateauing, but he's not quite fully developing. I think it's an important season. I think Fonseca is probably as good a manager as any for Jonathan David right now. So we'll look to see how he fares for the remainder of the season and how we'll on the whole fare. I think what we can be sure of, Michael, is that they'll score goals, they'll concede goals, and they'll probably be a good bet for a both teams to score. But not that we're advocating betting, that's totally up to you if you want to bet, if you don't. But real games, both teams to score, real games, plenty of goals. Uh, you can, for the most part, be sure of both of those. Okay, hopefully we'll continue to produce and Fonseca doesn't revert to a very defensive style off the back of this episode. Maybe this will be the episode. This episode will serve as more of a wake-up call than that resounding defeat to PSG. If you're listening, Powell, please keep going with the attacking style. It gives us plenty to talk about and enjoy. We're going to take a quick break before coming back to look at Spanish football. We'll be right back.
The departure of Casemiro came as a surprise to most, if not everyone, when he left Real Madrid, Champions League winners, of course, for Manchester United in the Europa League, of course. Now, Carlo Ancelotti was quick to shut down any rumours of a replacement, and in their first game without Casemiro, he deployed Eduardo Camavinga and Aurelien Chouameni alongside Luka Modric. Is that something we're likely to see regularly throughout the season as Ross Blancos managed a midfield transition of sorts, Barlow? Yeah, I think it's something that we could definitely see often enough throughout the season. However, I do think that when it comes to the big games, that might not be the pairing that, that goes with Luka Modric. And I think Casemiro, just touching on his departure first, I think he's an interesting one because... A lot of the things that he does and that he does well maybe don't stand out to the naked eye. I think the most uh, eye-catching thing about Casemiro tends to be the fact that he gets away with yellow cards, which uh, shows you some of the dirty work that he does do. But what he adds to, to Real Madrid or what he has added to Real Madrid for so long is the character and the personality in midfield. I think the ability to to sort of take people out of games, to, mm. to go mano a mano as they say and really kind of yeah shut other people down he's adapted his game pretty well to to Modric and Kroos and the fact that he sometimes provides kind of those late runs gets into the box when it's needed and more so than in league games I think it could actually benefit them in La Liga to a certain extent because I mean he is ostensibly a defensive midfielder who who kind of patrols the midfield in front of the back four but but where they'll miss him is in those big games. And I think part of the reason that we maybe won't see Camavinga and Chouamini is because I don't think Carlo Ancelotti quite trusts Eduardo Camavinga yet. And as big and as good as his impact was during last season, as in the Champions League in particular, of course, I, I'm not sure that he'll be trusted from the start. And I'll kind of explain my thinking. He Carlo Ancelotti has said that Chouameni is the obvious replacement. He has a lot of the same kind of defensive skills that Casemiro brought to the role and that he'll need to improve positionally, though. And this weekend against Espanyol, we saw a really thrilling game. It was 3-1 to Real Madrid in the dying moments. Benzema got a double, as is his want to do, that kind of thing. And Chouameni, quite often, I mean, he gave the assist for the first goal to Vinicius, a lovely slide-through ball through the defence, Vinicius' first-time finish, and... A lot of the passes that he was playing were actually further up the field than I think most of us expected from him. Saw so Tony Kroos drop into that kind of sixth position, start the moves, and Chouameni would kind of come into them a little bit further down the line against Espanyol. And I think that's a, a weapon that Carlo Ancelotti quite likes, ensuring that that first pass, that Tony Kroos is the sort of reliable route out of defence. I think he quite enjoys that kind of security that the German gives him the, the experience. Whereas you put that on Chouameni, it's quite a lot of responsibility. And I think he'll shuffle about depending on the opponent. But I think he'll use him at kind of different depths throughout the season and he won't necessarily be sort of hackled or, or uh, shackled is the word I'm looking for. Um, shackled to that number six position. And Kamavinga for... I was trying to come up with a metaphor for this and, and sort of an image that I could uh, put to use. And the best one I came up with is that Eduardo Camavinga is like Liam Neeson in the fact that he's really good at getting what he wants to get done. And if you put him on with sort of one singular goal in mind, and that's to, to sort of win the game, Camavinga brings that organised chaos. He has a particular set of skills and he will use them to find and kind of destroy the opponent uh, as, as he can. But he leaves kind of a, a trail of chaos in his, in his wake and... Uh, it does kind of remind of, of Liam Neeson's wrecking of several sort of pretty beautiful landmarks. But um, Camavinga, <laughs> what he tends to do when, when he comes on is really open up the game. And sort of some of his uh, frailties defensively, I think positionally, he's maybe not always in the right place. He makes the game very vertical. So it's end to end when Camavinga comes on. And that's good for Real Madrid when they want it to happen, when they are looking for a goal. And Canning Benzema needs extra space. Camavinga is very good at sort of, yeah, being dynamic and, and sort of really raising the tempo of a match. But in general play against those bigger teams, first sort of 60 minutes, 
that's not really want what you want because you don't want your team to be sort of ragged and, and running back and forth. Whereas if you do that sort of intentionally, then I think there's more kind of method to the madness. And so do I think we'll see them together? Probably not in the big games, but these are two young players that are developing and they, they're very talented, they're very skilled. They're adding more balls to the string with every kind of passing game. So you never know what the kind of future will bring. But in my view, I think it will be Tony Kroos, Chouamini and, and Luka Modric going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. But they do have a pretty impressive variety in that midfield of Real Madrid. Yeah, really exciting. And elsewhere now, Atletico Madrid theoretically have a lot of depth up front this season with Jao Felix, Alvaro Morata, Mateus Cunha and Angel Correa. Antoine Griezmann should be in contention for a starting spot too, especially after scoring twice in his three substitute appearances. The French forward has come on in the last half hour of each of their three league games so far, which hints at a peculiar situation unfolding in Madrid Barlow. Yeah, it's this bizarre clause that Antoine Griezmann has where there's a little bit of debate about it. Some say that he needs to appear in 50% of the minutes across the two seasons of his loan from Barcelona. And then Atleti are obligated to pay 40 million euros for him, which at that point Griezmann will be 31, 32 and probably not the soundest investment, it has to be said. Some people say that it's 50, 45 minutes or more in 50% of the games that he's available for. Now, last season, he played 33 out of 37 games were over 45 minutes. So that's it's a significant chunk of game time that he's already racked up. It was about 89% of the games that he was kind of hitting that figure in. So if that's to be the case, then he can only sort of hit that, that, uh, that mark, that milestone in 11% of the games this season. So far, he's come on with 28 minutes to go, 28 minutes to go, and 25 minutes to go. It does, it is a weird trend for it not to be related to this kind of clause. And the suggestion is that Los Rojiblancos are going to sit him and are going to basically, yeah, only play him for about half an hour a game if, if they can't negotiate a better deal with Barcelona because they just don't want to pay that clause. And I do kind of understand that thinking. But it's, I find it really unfair, I have to say. Antoine Griezmann has reduced his salary to come to Atleti. I think he's maybe in talks to reduce it again. He's, yeah, okay, maybe made a mistake going to Barcelona. And I think the way he left perhaps didn't go down too well with people. But he's an incredibly hardworking player. He's an incredibly unselfish player for a star. You won't get him sort of telling Simeone that he only wants to play in one position, that he can only do one thing. And particularly in a World Cup year, Antoine Griezmann, I don't think his place in the French national team is certain. I mean, he certainly in terms of the starting 11, there's potential for him to fall out of it. If you look at the likes of what Ousmane Dembélé is doing at Barcelona, just up the road in his old sort of, uh, at his old team, then there's a realistic chance that he could fall out of that, especially if he's only playing kind of 30 minutes every week. So I have to say, I find it tremendously unjust from Atleti that, their poor negotiating is going to have such a massive impact on Antoine Griezmann's year and, and potentially World Cup, which we all know how incredibly important that is to players and unique it is an opportunity to get to play a World Cup, even especially if you're kind of in and around your peak. So, so yeah, it's a bit of a, a grisly affair, it has to be said. And Atleti, as much as I understand their thinking, I understand what they want to do, particularly if this was a different club, a richer club, I think this would be looked upon pretty scathingly by the media. But I also think it will hurt them because Griezmann, I mean, Murata and Jao Felix have been the starting pair. I really liked what they've been doing together. But at the same time, Griezmann does add something. And we can see that by the fact that he's got two goals in that kind of limited amount of minutes, less than 90 minutes. He's, he's got two goals this season. And if you don't have that, then then you're leaving sort of Morata and Joao Felix or, or Cunha and Correa to always lead the line. But you miss a lot from Griezmann. I think having him, being able to start him and then bring on Morata or being able to start him and then bring on Correa if you want to go a bit more attacking, is it's going to be a miss for them. And I think 
one way or another, they need to sort out the situation because it just doesn't work for everyone, really. Yeah, it's certainly been a curious case for French internationals in the past week or two, but less said about um, <laughs> the better. Going back to Griezmann, on the end of receiving end of his winner on Monday night was Valencia. Gennaro Gattuso has started with three points from nine possible, but there still seems to be a good deal of optimism around the Mestalla. Yeah, I think we should do a, a deep dive on the Matthias Pogba um, witch doctor revelations. May I may I just interject there and say I once saw Matthias Pogba in Tingle in Glasgow <laughs> City Centre, which I think just adds a whole other layer to that particular supposed development. Uh, for, yeah. for context, Tingle is a shot bar in Glasgow. Uh, and Ali has frequented it. I have also do they um, do they still place myself in their attempts? Do, 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 <laughs> yes, they, do they do they still stalk the the mad scientist shots? If Fraser McAlpine is listening, then he he's very familiar with with those shots. And uh, yeah, they they, <laughs> they they do leave you slightly worse for wear, or so I'm told. But anyway, sorry, I I have I have digressed totally there. Let's let's get back <laughs> back on track. Sorry, guys, I'll I'll let you continue, Barlow. It does seem like Matthias Pogba has perhaps been on the mad scientist shots uh of late at least. <laughs> but uh but yeah back to Gattuso who who has his own kind of mad scientist vibe. Yeah it's a weird one because they beat Girona in the first game 1-0 and they were okay. Then they lost to Athletic Club and they were pretty good in spells and they kind of went Two or two, they went head to head with Athletic, and they were stylistic. There seems to be a bit of a breath of fresh air around Valencia, and I think a lot of people have bought into Gattuso and what he brings, kind of in terms of passion. I think it's very easy to get whipped up into a frenzy by Gattuso because he is such a a character. And Edinson Cavani's also come in, which is a massive signing. I think that could. It's hard to tell exactly what kind of shape Cavani's in, given his kind of spell at United. I mean, it was kind of up and down. A lot of United fans seem to be keen on him, but still needs to show that he can still score those goals. But there's also the departure of Carlos Soler, who's impending. He's off to PSG. Gonzalo Gedge has gone, and as Paco Polite, who's who's a very good authority on Valencia for anyone who wants to follow him. They've accounted for 70 in terms of goals and assists, out of the 119 goals that Valencia have scored in the last two seasons, which is a pretty remarkable number. And whether Cavani can mm. can provide some of that, okay, perhaps, but it is an issue. It does seem like it's Cavani or Bus because the other strikers, Maxi Gomez, might be on his way out, but him, Marcos Andre, Hugo Duro, they don't have a track record of scoring plenty of goals. And I remember last season when Jose Bordalas first came in, and they got beaten off Real Madrid 2-1. And there was a there was a lot of optimism about the way they played. And they were very good on that night. They were very good in their 1-0 defeat to Atleti for large swathes of the game. But unless they can capitalise on that, unless they can keep that momentum going, you worry that perhaps it will end up petering out again. I mean, I've, I've marked Valencia out as a candidate to have a tough season. And unless that Cavani transfer comes off, then I, I really do fear for Gattuso. But it does have to be said that they've looked good and their their new style has been pretty entertaining. But it also needs to be effective, I think. Mm, certainly one to watch. It's a transfer that is decidedly iconic, may I say, by Edinson Cavani to Valencia. There's a, there's a certain mystique to that move to that club in general. Let's hope that things do start to click for them. Okay, that was, again, extremely interesting plenty to mull over for the listener i think what we'll do now is we'll take a quick break and we'll turn our attention to germany we're going to look at ollie burke's brilliant start to life at werder bremen we'll be right back Now for the German section of the podcast, we are delighted to be joined once again by a good friend of the podcast, Byron Hutchison. Byron, as we all know, is the go-to man for all things Scottish players playing their football abroad. And so while we have 
Byron, it probably makes sense for us to put Oliver Burke under the Road to Nowhere microscope. Now, Burke could hardly have dreamt of a better start to life at Werder Bremen. Following his last gasp equaliser against Stuttgart on match day two, the 25-year-old rifled home a 95th minute winner on match day three to secure a memorable three points for his side against Eden Terzic's Borussia Dortmund at the Westfalen Stadion. Now, it would be an understatement to suggest that Burke has struggled to realise his supposed potential following his acclaimed move from Nottingham Forest to RB Leipzig for about £13 million way back in 2016. That move, of course, making him the most expensive Scottish player in history at that time. And yet, based on his first few brief appearances, and they have just been cameo appearances for Verd Brown, we should say, we would perhaps be forgiven for thinking that the grass is looking decidedly greener for Burke at his new club. So, taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, Byron, what should be our main takeaways from Burke's early season heroics? And looking ahead, what can we realistically expect from the Kirkcaldy Bond forward as the season develops? Yeah, I think um, for me, and I think, I guess probably like like most people, uh, Burke felt like Burke did well to land up where he did at Bremen, in a top league, at a a big club, relatively speaking. Uh, mm. The you know the Vesser Stadion holds forty two thousand. It's packed every match day, and uh, they won the Bundesliga as recently as two thousand four. So in a I think as we all know in a, in a Bundesliga context, that's pretty recent if you're any club not named Bayern Munich. So and as well as that, they were UEFA Cup runners up in two thousand nine. So. They're a big historic club, and for him to land there, I think a lot of people were surprised. Obviously, they'd just been promoted from the the second Bundesliga, um, but in the grand scale of things, they're they're a big team, and it's a really good landing spot for him. And I think for me as well, I, I feel like it's a little bit out of the the UK spotlight, which probably benefits him. Um, probably means he gets a bit of a fresh start and can kind of block out the noise a little bit. And the, but the reason, you know, you mentioned that I covered Scottish players abroad, the reason I do it is because I, I sort of noticed that there was a bit of a gap and they don't always get talked about on a weekly basis. And for Burke, I think that's probably a good thing. If he starts making noise, it will be because he's performing well. If he has an off week, people back home really won't take notice of it. So uh, I think it's a good move from for him in that regard. Uh, what, I'd, what I'd expect from him this season, to be honest, is probably much of what we've already seen. So like you said, he's not played too much, been used as a bit of an impact sub. I think the... The interesting thing for me was when he first joined, he was given a number nine jersey. Um, so it, made, it was made pretty clear he was going to be playing centre forward. Played his first game in pre-season against Karlsruhe. Uh, watched that in Austria and he scored, came off the bench. Again, made an impact wearing the number nine jersey, doing what he started to do this season already. And and it seems pretty clear to me that that will be their game plan going forward. You know, they have a, a pretty set system that works really well with, with Phil Crook and Dirksch at the moment. Um, and they kind of soften up the defences for Burke and he can come on and use the assets that we all know he has, that that pace, the power, um, the raw speed to get in behind defences when they're a little bit tired, uh, when there's there may be a little bit tired and fatigued mentally as well, and give up those sorts of gaps. And we, we saw it against Dortmund. We saw it against Stuttgart too, to a slightly lesser degree, but I think the Dortmund goal especially was an example of a team switching off Obviously, the game state was important there. They're, they're trying to push for a winner themselves um, after falling apart a little bit. But uh, it seems to me, at least from the early signs, that's the role they have for him in the team. And I think it's probably a good one because the, the pressure isn't on him there to be the, despite wearing the number nine jersey and the weight that comes with that, to be the guy making a difference every week. If he's coming off the bench, you know, it's more of a hope than expectation, I would say. Um and for Burke, I think it's probably, he's, he's on a long-term deal as well, I should say. So for Burke, it's probably a good way to bed himself into the team. Um, and then we'll see where he is at Christmas. We'll see what, what happens with the squad next summer. But uh, I think if he can keep making an impact from the bench, obviously, if he continues to score at the rate he is now, he'll probably be starting before long. But um, there's not too much pressure on him. And I think it's more about getting his fitness up, seeing if he can make an impact, which he's shown he already can and then seeing where he can go um, beyond that and if they can maybe fold him into the team longer term as a starter. Absolutely, Byron. I did particularly enjoy the footage you shared of the Werder fans celebrating in the aftermath of that win against Dortmund with one chap playing the bagpipes. Uh, and I think Ollie Burke certainly been 
when you read his comments of late, he does seem to really appreciate that. I think he maybe already feels more loved at Verda than, than he has anywhere else, arguably, uh, since he made that move from, from Nottingham Forest to RB Leipzig way back in 2016. It does just seem like yesterday. Anyway, having looked at Oli Burke and referenced his role in Werder Bremen's captivating 3-2 win at the Westfalen Stadion, I think it would probably be remiss of us not to thrust Dortmund's enduring incompetency under the Road to Nowhere microscope as well. They led 2-0 heading into the 88th minute of that now unforgettable encounter with their visitors from Lower Saxony, and yet somehow contrived to throw away all three points. Last season, only three Bundesliga clubs conceded fewer goals in Dortmund after the 76th minute, and match day three's capitulation will have done little to allay any fears that that trend of losing goals and points late on in games will continue this season. Why, Byron, did Dortmund continue to make it so difficult for themselves? Yeah, I think um, it's, I'm probably maybe a funny person to ask when it comes to Dortmund because I, you know, the I get the sense that the British facing German media do quite a good job of talking Dortmund up and talking their chances up at the start of every season. And obviously, I understand why they're trying to build up some sort of competition. You know, um, put Dortmund forward as potential title challengers. But for me, anyway, in, in, in the four years I've been in Germany, I've never once felt like Dortmund have had a team or a manager or a combination of the two to truly compete. Um, it's probably a longer topic and a, a discussion we can have at another time. But because of that, I've always found them sort of incredibly frustrating and uh, to the point where it's not even sort of empathy. It's more just, you know, like... I can't be bothered with them. Um, but yeah, like I said, maybe something we can talk about at a different time. But um, to get to your point uh, about the capitulation against Bremen specifically, I think the reality of that game is they were lucky to be in the lead in the first place. Um, they were very poor um, in that game. Both Guerrero and Brandt scored from somewhat speculative efforts. Uh, for, I think they were both outside the box. Brandt might have been just inside. but um, And on the whole, they had five shots in total. Um, I think the combined XG is 0.39 I've got here. Bremen's was 0.144. Um, obviously, like we talked about, the game state plays a little bit of a factor there. Bremen were really going for it at the end, but most of their chances came before the last five minutes. And uh, they probably, arguably, could have been ahead and we're unlucky to be behind at the very least. I think Dortmund were very fortunate to be 2-0 up. So in terms of that game specifically, I don't think anything... So it's more of a coincidence that it's a last-minute capitulation than anything. I think uh, if you look at it across the 90 minutes, they didn't, they weren't really value for their lead. And if anyone deserved to be leading, it was probably Bremen. And I think it just caught up to them in the end. Uh, the concerning thing for me is that it wasn't really a one-off. Uh, I think... Dortmund were a little better in their games before, especially against Leverkusen and, and Freiburg, but I didn't come away from either of those matches thinking they looked significantly better than, than either of those two teams. In fact, I think against Leverkusen in particular, I thought they got pretty lucky. Um, if I remember, there was a, a goal ruled out for, for offside maybe or a VAR decision. Can't quite remember, but uh, Leverkusen were really going for it at one point. And again, those chances weren't hard to create either. And if I were a Dortmund fan, I'd be concerned about the makeup of their squad, I think, and that the lack of both attacking quality combined with a, a fairly flaky midfield and defence. Uh, and beyond that, no real squad depth. You know, when you look at their bench, I don't think anyone would look at that and even think it was a Champions League level team. Um, and that's a concern for me, despite winning three of their first four games, they, they've struggled so far. And, and that lack of depth, I've mentioned, will come back to bite them I reckon uh, particularly when the European fixtures pick up and that becomes their top priority so um, in general yeah against Bremen I don't have an explanation for uh, why they're capitulating last minute but I don't think it was uh, uh, bad luck or misfortune I think it was a result of them not being great throughout the game um, and a result of their overall problems at the moment more than anything else. Absolutely Byron and I think we do also have to give credit, as you did, to, to Werder Bremen for their performance. I felt it was quite a brave performance. They, they weren't scared of Dortmund, and I think they'll be an interesting watch, certainly if you like a goer to manage to catch their game against Frankfurt on Sunday, uh, just Sunday there, and straight from the get-go, the game had goals. So Werder Bremen 
for the interest in Ollie Burke, I suppose, but just generally should be a team that I would highly encourage listeners of the podcast to pay attention to this season. Okay, Byron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking to you once again. Cheers, mate. And that brings to an end another episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Before we do sign off for this one, I would just say, if you don't already follow Byron on Twitter, do follow Byron. It's at Byron Hutchison. Uh, He is a leading voice, as we've said, on all things Scottish players playing abroad. Definitely worthy of a follow. So please do give Byron a follow over on Twitter. Apart from that, I'll say thanks to Michael Jones and Rudy Barlow who have gone off to enjoy their evenings. I'll say thanks to you, the listener. Stay safe, stay well. Until next time, goodbye. Mm -hmm.